0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today, and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. What's well, up, everyone? Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Jennifer Hamlin. Now, this was an interesting conversation because we went all over the place, and those are often the interviews I enjoy the most. So we talked a lot about animals, our relationship with them as humans, and we got quite into the philosophy of it all as well. If you enjoy this episode, then why not check out some of the more than 340 other episodes in the back catalog. Seeds is all about telling good stories and trying to get some positive messages out about what motivates people and why they do what they do. And why not paste the link to the conversation in social media somewhere? That way, other people can find out about the resource that is Seeds Podcast. Now, let's get straight into this conversation. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Jennifer Hamlin, who's the founder and chair of the Allied Veterinary Professional Regulatory Council. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I'll be honest, I don't know much about the veterinary profession. (laughs) So I would love to learn more. I would love to hear about what you're involved in. And I know you're involved in a lot on education side as well. Um, But I also love to find out about people's stories. And so in your case, I would love to go back in time And just find out what it is that's led you to do what you do today. So can you outline for us, like we're going way back in time, when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was life like?
1: So I grew up in a rural area of California, um, north of San Francisco, about three hours in an area called Mendocino County. And um, we lived on a big piece of property I had acres and acres of land to wander around and um, that was really a great interest of mine um, when I was a child and I loved animals. I was I was just really obsessed with animals and um, I started out having uh, a cat and hamster and rabbit and fish and um, moved on to dogs and um, so by the time I was about ten, um, I had uh, animals, chickens, horses, um, that's that type of thing. And I was a really avid reader, and um, and I ended up reading James Harriet, who is a Yorkshire uh, country vet. And I'm sure that anybody who's in the veterinary field listening to this will have a little giggle because James Harriet was responsible for a lot of people entering the veterinary profession. Um, he sort of romanticized this idea of this this country vet. It was just him traveling around in his car, uh, treating animals, and the stories he told of uh, his his patients and his clients uh, were compelling and interesting and funny. and um, it was just inspiring. And uh, from that very early age of reading um, those, i I really started to identify with the compassion side of animals and the healthcare side of animals and the science of caring for animals, health care. My grandfather was a physician, uh, my grandmother was a nurse, and um, I had a lot of influences around science and education. My my aunts and uncles are educated and um, university was a big deal in my and so I always had this this sort of intellectual Influence in my life, so uh, it wasn't just being interested in animals. It was it was from a very early age that I started thinking about you know the whole story about interact with animals in my life, and I can I can recall a a, a piece of writing that I did when I was in in I think kindergarten or first grade or second grade. Um, you know, where you're learning how to write and you have these, you know, giant grids that you're writing on. And, and I remember writing that I wanted to have um, a store with animals, a shop with animals when I grow up. And uh, interestingly, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, so by the time I was uh, a young adult, I decided to volunteer in a vet clinic And I started working in a equine vet clinic and volunteering uh, because I was just obsessed. And I can remember when I first walked down that driveway, the very first day I was volunteering and the smells of the iodine from the barn and the surgery and the autoclave and then the smell of the horses and the whole thing was just so compelling. I just fell in love with it. So it really wasn't a choice for me. It just was, it was determined, predetermined from a very early age that this is what I was going to do.
0: Wow. And I can tell that it's something that, you know, because that's, that's pretty young to know that that's what you want to do. Were there, were there specific animals that you connected with at a young age, like, you mentioned horses, for example, was there a a creature or an animal that you had a special bond with? I only ask because in my case, I think I was seven or eight years old when we got a dog whose name was Sheba. And she was the most beautiful black Labrador dog. And, you know, as a child, I connected in a way that is beyond words, I guess, you know, that there was a a love and a friendship and this animal and I, are having adventures together. Was there particular animals like that for you, or was it just every animal that you came into contact with?
1: I love your story about how you connected with Shiva. Mm. And I think that's, that's really a natural story that a lot of children have before they're taught about eating animals and um, using animals and, um, and, you know, Kind of putting animals in a position where they're more of a commodity from from my perspective, I just loved all animals I was interested in any little thing i could I could interact with i I remember having fish when I was very young and I remember I'm um, having a hamster then, and my mom made me promise that I would take care of my my um Cat. When I promised her that I, or when I begged her to have a cat, and and then I begged her to have a dog, and you know she made me promise that I would take care of the dog, and beg to have a rabbit, and um, she she made me promise to take care of the rabbit, and. And the interesting thing was I was I was very interested in, in not just live animals, but any time we'd find an animal out on a trail that was, a, you know, a skeleton or something, I wanted to examine the skeleton and learn all about it. <laughs> My mom loves to tell stories about how she just had to tear me away from, from various things. And I used to catch little salamanders out in the creek and little turtles and lizards. We had these blue-bellied lizards that were very common in California and um, then I went on to birds. I had, I had parakeets and then moved on to parrots and, and things like that. And I just, any kind of animal I could get my hand. I, in fact, I remember in university, I ended up getting some mice and breeding some mice. I thought that was interesting. So I just, I, there was no limits to, to my interest in animals. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. And do you think that was partly because of the environment you were growing up in where there was such a diversity and variety of animals? Or would it have been the same if you'd grown up in an apartment in a high rise in New York City or something?
1: I just don't remember a time when I wasn't just completely fascinated and um, interested in animals. I was just so interested in the way that they interacted and interacting with them and um you know so it wasn't that i just happened to be around them because when i was quite young before i was five we were living in an apartment and so i didn't get exposure to you know farm animals and things like that um so yeah and, and i think actually it, it is sometimes to find that sort of identity at that early age, and and I think that's a key characteristic of why I ended up where I'm where I ended up in terms of my career and and the things that I'm doing in my life to make a difference in the world. Um, and I and I've actually started to investigate that in in I'm doing a doctorate at the moment, and I've started to investigate this this whole thing, which is professional identity, and part of that professional identity is is about self awareness and so i've had to go back and tell my story and and bring up these old connections about where did i get this idea how did i develop this identity and what makes me me and how am i what were my values then and what are my values now and how am i living to my values now so this whole thing is connected because Professional identity in any context always includes self-identity, personal identity. It's not separate. You don't have a separate identity at work from the one at home. You, it, is, it is connected. And mm. that's, that's really an imperative thing. So all these things that I, that I bring with me from my childhood around um, interacting with animals has really shaped who I am now. And one of my key values that I have now is compassion. I have compassion for other people. And there's many facets to what that means, but it also means really having compassion for any living thing that's experiencing feelings and pain and thoughts and, um, and joy and and things like that. So, um, and that and being around animals has certainly helped to give me that value.
0: Yeah. I really like that. And I love how the word that I'm using more and more these days, because people often talk about work life balance but I think that is a wrong conception. And I think we should be talking about work-life integration. In other words, you love what you do. Why Why do we always talk about work as being, oh, I have to work yeah. to supplement the life that I lead outside of my work. Mm-hmm. I'm really lucky. I work as a lawyer, um, but it's something I feel really passionate about and I can help people in what they need. And so I don't feel like I have sort of a, I'm working and then that funds my weekend, which is yeah. my life, you know, yeah. Yeah. actually, it, it should it, it, it we'll be filled with regret when we get to 95 years old, yeah. if we make it that long, and look back and think, 40, 50 hours of my week, I spent doing something I didn't actually feel motivated about. So yeah. i love to hear you the way you're describing it. And that sort of concept of integrating your life so that it's actually on meaning and purpose.
1: Yeah, I, I, I relate to that so strongly, because I, I really completely agree. I love what I do. And you pretty much have to tear me away from the desk, because I love it. And I think we're lucky, though. Maybe some people don't have that. But I, I love to feel like, a difference in the world I love to feel like I'm making a difference every day to every person that I talk with Mm. and and I live for that and if I don't have that what is my life really so my work is my life and I'm not saying I I work too much although sometimes that is the case but it is who I am it's not I just go to work eight to five but I guess we need factory workers don't we you know Mm.
0: Yeah, Although if I we degrow do. our
1: society, but that's another concept altogether, isn't it? <laughs> maybe we don't yeah. need as many factories. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the, the current hot topic is artificial intelligence, right? And how yes. at some point we won't need as many people to do this work and we can re-divert maybe and do other things. So do you think, um, looking back at that childhood, because it sounds really, it, it's interesting to me, were, in your family, were people like, why do you love animals so much like were you were you that sort of a kid where people were like where did she get this from or is it something that was in your family do you think it was in your parents or your grandparents can you see a origin of it or is it more just no this is actually jennifer this is who she is
1: yeah i think it was i think it was just me Um, we didn't have a farm or anything like that that i that i grew up on from that early age Um, So it wasn't like there were animals everywhere and that was just part of our life. Um, But my mom is just the most supportive and encouraging and gentle, uh, loving person that I know. And she taught me all of those things. And so when I interacted with animals from a very early age, She taught me those skills of, you know, who is this animal? What are they thinking? Um, What do they need? How can we love them more? And um, I remember talking to her, uh, it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago about an animal that I had who, that was really a wonderful, just wonderful being on this planet. And she said, all of your animals have been that way. It's the way that you interact with them that makes them so special and, um, and without a doubt, when I look back at the animals that I've had, they're just amazing individuals and people remark on how, how interactive and connected and sensitive and intuitive and, and all these things. Um, and that's partly because of the way that I've brought them into my life and, and treated them. It's amazing the capacity of animals to really come into their own if you give them that autonomy, that agency to be themselves, and and to recognize that they, they deserve to be themselves, you know, they're not here for us, we're here with them. And um, that's a really important concept. So that's really helped to sort of shape, um, you know, my relationship with them. And I I don't think anybody's ever questioned it, my mom just supported it, and Mm. encouraged me to, to express my compassion toward animals. Um, i really love obsessed that. though
0: <laughs> yeah 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 I, I really love that though and a shout out to your mom um because i think sometimes we forget the people who shaped us or you know why are we the way we are and it's good to acknowledge and recognize that and then the follow-up question of course is who is the next generation that we could play that role for because mm-hmm. so often i think we forget that as we become adults um is there a nephew or a niece or a child or someone in your life that you could also pass those sorts of skills onto? Um, and I'm really interested, just it's almost a philosophical uh, conversation, but I love these ones. So just bear with me. <laughs> Cause what you're describing um, I think from a Western conception, the way that we sometimes would see it is that humans are here to dominate and subdue nature or the land, you know, or, or, you know, like we are somehow above and it is below and we own it. And, and it's interesting to me, because I've been learning more about Ta'o Maori indigenous perspectives, which would say, well, wait a minute, actually, this is our brother, this is our sister, the earth is our mother. How I'm just curious, I guess, the concepts that you're talking about when it comes to animals. um, How do you see that relating? Any thoughts on that?
1: You know, I have a little bit of Native American in my background, and one of the concepts that was quite important in that is that we're not living on the land. We're living with the land, and, um, and that's really about respect. I, I really like what you're saying, and I, I have to sort of, you know, hold myself back a bit because I could really get on a soapbox about this. I'm increasingly feeling like we're exploiting the planet if i look look at where humans are now compared to how we were uh, 100 years ago the changes we've made to the planet in a short period of time are so significant so and i think with animals that's particularly true when we look at the the percentages of um of livestock compared to wild animals now the mass of of people and livestock on the planet is is significantly more. I think um, David Attenborough said in his um, documentary, it's something like ninety-five percent of the mass of mammals on the planet is humans and their livestock. So, you know that that does pose a challenge for us in terms of how we how we have evolved our relationship with animals. And I really do think that that some of that needs a close look, but we have really biased ourselves against thinking that we are exploiting animals. We really are, are, are not happy to look at that concept and that that's a, a a juxtaposition of, of values really that affects the veterinary community now because we have to sort of set aside those things, you know, a physician a human physician a human nurse um, they don't eat their patients whereas veterinary professionals do eat their patients off well not their patients but you know animals mm. um, so it it is a it is a challenge um, I don't know if that answered your question but I liked where you were going with that I think I could have about Five hours of talking about that, if I'm honest
0: yeah, well I, I think I think it's really important, and even for the, our listeners, some of them will come from your networks and thinking about their roles as vets, you know and and what do they do and why do they do it and and your students as well, you know coming through because I think this is important to think through what's my role in all of this, and I lived for in Japan for five years, and in Japan, I think there's is a more holistic view of the world in the sense of. Um, you know, we don't want to go too deep here, but from a spiritual perspective, for example, that they actually would put little um, around trees, which are very old, they would recognize the trees and they they have these little things that they put around them at the base, usually made of paper or some some way to kind of acknowledge that this tree is special. You know, I know we're not talking about trees, but but they're living, you know, they're alive. There's a history there. And if you, certainly for me, um, I don't know if you've been up to see some of the oldest kauri trees, um, but, you know, a tanemahuta, and you look at it and you think, wow, this has been here for like 2,000 years. <laughs> um, and I guess all that I'm trying to get across is this respect for the natural world and our place in it, rather than the conception that we're somehow above it, rather than it being we are in it, we are part of it. Um, And I think that's something that we could be reminded of more often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. There's nothing, um, nothing like getting that sense of humility when looking at the ocean, at the bigger context of the forest. Um, I did actually spend some time um, recently when I went back to California to visit family and I visited the old redwood trees again and Those trees are so old, and I just almost feel like they're there to tell me a story, and I'm so humbled that they are still alive. Mm -hmm. And that whole perspective, I think, we have lost touch with. A lot of us have lost touch with. And if we haven't lost touch with it, I don't feel like we're creating a community of awareness to foster why that's important, certainly in our society. And I think, you know, you mentioned Japan, taking time out to recognize those things. That awareness is really important because if we're, if we're out on the farm every day and we're just used to cutting up the land and, um, you know, putting um, pesticides and fertilizers on the land and chopping down every tree we can find, that's what becomes normal to us. So I think who we're around and what we're around is really important. And that's why people who are talking about respect for the land need to speak loudly. We need to be heard. We need to be creating a normal conversation around this and remind us all about why it's important. Because our our sense of guardianship um, is incredibly important.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, let's hope that these sorts of conversations slowly, but uh, surely have some impact as people listen in and and consider. Um, So I'd love to turn back to your life. Like, what what do you do if you're an (laughs) animal-obsessed lover of nature? Um, Is it a natural path? Did you know, right, I know where I'm going, where I'll study, or do you get to the end of high school? Like, what happened next in your sort of educational journey?
1: Hmm. Um well it's interesting because I think I think a lot of people think oh this person's animal obsessed and and they probably have you know like 8 million animals and um that was never me. Um I I was always really aware and in fact I I got a puppy last year and it, it honestly took me about 5 years to get a puppy because I there's so much responsibility in having an animal and um and so I've always been really careful about about how I can provide a good life for, for animals. So it's not like I have a lot of animals or that I need to be, you know, working with animals all the time. I think I think perhaps animals were, were more of a conduit for compassion for me. So um, it just was a natural sort of career choice for me, I guess, when I was a high school student, I was volunteering in a vet clinic and um, and at the time, and this might be amazing to, to most people in the profession now, at the time, there wasn't anybody who was around me who was qualified as a veterinary nurse or a veterinary technician. It was just vets. And so that was my only career pathway option at the time. Um, and I thought that's what I would want to do. Um, and and then I had a job opportunity to work at a, so I had work at, I'd started working, volunteering at a equine and farm animal practice. Um, And I I worked there for about five years uh, and thinking I was just enjoying growing up and learning about it and loving my job. And then I got an opportunity to work at an avian and exotics clinic, which is a complete switch. Um, But what was cool about that job is that um, working in a large animal practice was is different. It's not like a hospital environment. Um, so going into the avian and exotics clinic, I went into a hospital and in that hospital, there was a veterinary nurse trained in from the UK. And I saw this completely new job opportunity role for me. And she said, Oh, you know, there's a school just up the road. You can take classes. And suddenly I thought, Oh, I need to, I need to go and do this. So um that really is where my career started i um I learned that there was a role and then had the opportunity to go to school and By then, I was in my early twenties and um I just was ready for something more other than working so I decided to to take off and go to school become a vet tech
0: yeah, that's great and was this all in California still or yeah you- yeah yeah, yeah cause when, before we started recording we were mentioning a place called sonora right and yeah. um and you had a connection back there as well what was it was it your grandfather or your uncle my
1: dad my dad oh. so um my mom and dad split when i was very young and um he ended up uh going into corrections and um he worked at the sierra conservation center which is in sonora and um and I always knew of this place that was, you know, quite a few hours drive from my house. And sometimes I would go and visit him there. And it was just like a different world from where I'd grown up. Um, really beautiful area, that area. And and mm-hmm. so, so interesting because I've never met anyone else who's from that area. So it's so cool that we've met. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's it's amazing because basically my grandfather um, was living in, in San Francisco at the kind of end of world war ii type of time and he took his family to live in in sonora and he became a builder there and i just wonder you know how life is like this if your dad was there and my dad was there and my grandfather was there like at some point i'm sure there was a little interaction or connection um because my for example my grandfather used to help with building and um, i think they did used to do lots of uh you know construction of different things so the point is it, it life is like this isn't it? it it interweaves with people and places and so I'm really yeah it's kind of a fun little connection that we have there <laughs> there's this relatively small place as we know but beautiful um up there in the in the Sierra Nevada mountains mm, yeah. so so back to your story then um, yeah what what happened next and I'm curious to get us up to speed because We're obviously on the opposite side of the world now. So (laughs) how do you go from doing all this work in America and then end up over here? And yeah, tell us a little or maybe bring us up to speed with what you're doing and in particular about the Regulatory Council.
1: Mm. So um, I decided to go to vet tech school and um, and so I I went to um, to university and found that I had a very strong aptitude for, uh, for academics. And, um, and so I, I was midway through my um, vet tech course and I wanted to know more about heart murmurs and my instructor said, you don't need to know that, that's just for vets to know about. And I was totally unsatisfied with that answer. And I decided I would finish my vet tech qualification and then um, go on to vet school and, um, and I decided to enroll in um, a bachelor's degree that was a five-year bachelor's degree because in, in America, you have to get a bachelor's degree before you uh, apply to vet school. And, um, and I decided to enroll in a bachelor's degree. I got a, a Howard Hughes Memorial Fellowship in research um, because of my academic standing. And I went into university um, with the intention of being a research assistant while I studied. Uh, So I had a five-year bachelor's degree in neurobiology, physiology, and behavior. And um, so by the time I was done, and and I ended up um, doing, being a research assistant at the UC Davis Medical Center, um, by the time I was done, I had spent um, eight years in university, and I was tired. And I'd been working um, part-time in a vet clinic while I was there. And and i did some work at the um uc davis uh, vet med teaching hospital um i was tired and i had an opportunity to come to new zealand for a holiday i was intending on spending a couple of years here um but it um in 6 months in i got a job offer and um and i was pretty burnt out from from vet vet medicine at the time i think my my previous boss, he was wonderful and had a really nice, um, hospital, but, um, he was burnt out and needed to retire. And I didn't realize how much that was influencing my perceptions of the veterinary industry. Um, and so I had pretty much decided when I came to New Zealand, I didn't want to do, um, that stuff anymore. Um, so when I got the job offer at a, at a a referral clinic in, in Christchurch, I took it up, and it was a totally different world than America. Um, and the way I like to think about it is I was a little fish in a big pond in America, but in New Zealand, I was a big fish in a little pond because the education that we get in America was perceived to be much better than uh, New Zealand education for vet techs and vet nurses. So I started in on the clinic, and it seemed like the the um, people, the employee, my employers in the clinic, were saying, you know, uh, go ahead and do the radiograph, and go ahead and do the um, put the patient on IV fluids, and um, do up an IV fluid plan, and um, you know, do up the dose rate for the anesthetic, and um, giving me all these tasks. And I remember looking around and seeing the vet nurses that um that were working in the clinic alongside me and they were sort of looking at me like wow we never get to do any of this and at that point things really changed for me and i started to wonder what is the difference between me and these other people that i'm working with why is it that i have been given so many opportunities to do so many things yet these these people are not have not been given these opportunities and so I started thinking about well, how have they been educated? That's so different. What is their professional identity that's so different from mine? And um, and then I had an opportunity to start work at Otago Polytech, um, and that was back in 2005. And um, and I could not get this out of my mind that there was something in the education system that was different, that was really distinguishing this, um, because my perceptions when I stepped into New Zealand clinic was that it was, uh, it was about 20 years behind uh, North America. We just, we weren't doing things in the same way. It was sort of like very sort of frontline medicine. You couldn't refer to any big hospitals and you would think that in that environment you'd be utilizing nurses more, but in fact, it was just the opposite. They didn't seem to be utilized at all. And there were even some nurses that weren't even qualified and they were calling themselves vet nurses. And that just didn't happen in the States. So there was a a really big question for me at that point. And and I, I looked around me in New Zealand and I just immediately started to think, how can I help? What can I do here? How can I make this better? Because there's a lot of unsatisfied vet nurses here and there's a lot of overworked vets. And we were working really long hours and not making very much money. Veterinary nurses make make worse money than if you went to work at McDonald's. I mean, it's terrible. So this, this became a real sort of mission for me in life. And um when i when I started in education, I started to to talk to other people who were educators around the world and I started to find out that one of the key things that was setting me apart from from kiwi nurses is that I had that professional identity starting with those James Harriet books that I had read, and that that identity was giving me a sense of confidence. At the time, I thought that it might be education that w- had given me that confidence—that there was some underpinning science knowledge from my bachelor's degree or something—that was really giving me that boost to help the vets to trust me. But I think it was just my my professional identity. I was confident. I was inspired, um, and they they saw it as some somebody that they could trust. So uh, I once I started doing a little bit more in education, I had an opportunity to, um, a, a colleague nominated me to join the New Zealand Veterinary Nursing Association. And um, that's the representative organization for vet nurses in New Zealand. And um, that was a real turning point for me because um, a very sh- a, a short time before then, I had the pleasure of meeting a colleague uh, named Sally Bowden, who was a vet nurse from the UK. And she had been involved in um, drafting the first bachelor's degree for vet nurses in the UK and also involved in the, the representative organization and also uh, aware of the, the council uh, regulatory side of things over there. And she said to me, why doesn't New Zealand have a regulatory uh, council for vet nurses? Because that's missing. And so, when I joined NZVNA, I said that. Um, I joined, I think, around 2009. And I said, "Um, why why don't we have a regulatory organization? And there seemed to be quite a bit of confusion about what a regulatory organization was. And Sally said, well, you can't hold somebody's hand and slap it at the same time. So, that's where regulation and representation sort of diverge. So I decided to start looking into it and thought, you know, I need to help increase awareness and professionalism for vet nurses because if I'm ever going to make a difference in New Zealand, that is what I, what I should do. And, um, and so by 2014, um, I was sitting around the table with uh, three other people, um, involved in, um, vet nursing and Um, we created the Allied Veterinary Professional Regulatory Council, which was a working committee of NZVNA. And is still a working committee of NZVNA to this day. Hmm.
0: That's great. It's been quite a journey, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, to come from America, to end up in New Zealand and then to identify these things and then to set this up. So what sort of things is the the group involved in today? Like where, where do you fit in the ecosystem of, of this sector,
1: mm. so it's really interesting because uh, in 2014, um, the NZVNA had um, less than 50 people signed up um, to register their continuing professional development, which is a way that we um, demonstrate our clinical currency and fitness to practice. And when we announced that we were going to create this voluntary register. Um within three months, we had two hundred and fifty people apply uh, to join the register and i some talking to Sally, I knew that this was going to be huge, and it it has turned out to be huge, and now we have a thousand people um, on the register wow. and um and there are approximately maybe somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 people who could be on the register. So um, for us to make make that progress um, since 2015, when the register was first published, um, it's pretty impressive because it's completely voluntary. People don't have to do it at all. Um, and it does take time and money to, to be on the register. So, the interesting thing about this in terms of where I am now is that this gave me an incredibly valuable lesson about the power of anybody to make change in the world. And I've since realized that I'm a divergent thinker. I'm full of ideas. And I have the capacity to take something that was just an idea and create a whole organization around that. And that's a message I am really trying to convey to my profession that this is entirely possible, that it's, it's incredible. The situation that we're in now globally uh, is, is a crisis in the veterinary sector. Um, with the veterinary nursing profession is currently in a crisis of dissatisfaction with our careers. Um, we aren't getting paid enough. Uh, we aren't being utilized enough. And there is a global shortage of veterinarians now and veterinary nurses around the world, which is an animal health, an animal welfare risk, and a public health risk. If you think about um, all the diseases that that emerge each year, um, 70% of diseases are um, zoonotic or transmissible between animals and humans. Um, We cannot ignore the importance of animal health to humanity. So you can say, oh, we don't know what the veterinary profession does, but it's critical to our survival as a species that we uh, embrace this. And it's also critical in terms of wildlife. Um, it's inc- the, the pet industry itself is worth billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so animals are a huge part of society um, and, and our culture. So to be able to influence the veterinary nursing profession has become a bit of mission for me. Um, And it's not really exclusive to the veterinary nurses themselves. It's actually sort of um, branching out to the whole veterinary sector because it's influencing veterinary practice and veterinarians as well. Um, But my goal is to see that the veterinary nursing profession can evolve. Um, Because if we look at human nurses, Uh, They have gone through this already. We're we're about 50 years behind human nurses. Um, They learned about nursing practice and developed formalized training programs and educational standards and professional standards. And um, then they developed graduate programs and postgraduate programs. And they didn't have physicians teaching those programs or guiding them or telling them how they were going to evolve. They did that themselves. And at the moment, we lack that confidence, that leadership, and that professional identity to take us to the next level. So this has really inspired me, um, seeing how much change I've been able to influence. We are currently um, reviewing the Veterinarians Act, looking to write new legislation that formally regulates veterinary nurses. And um, in 2023, the ABPRC is going to uh, branch out as an independent organization um, because we don't yet have the legislation, although we're hoping that within um, one to four years, we might have that legislation. And at that point, we will um, hopefully amalgamate with the Veterinary Council, uh, uh, which is uh, mandated under um, government through the Veterinarians Act. Mm. so it's quite exciting, lots happening.
0: (laughs) That's great. No, but I love that um, hearing about your story, and then what's going on today, and yeah, it does sound like there's a lot on, but like you say, it's so vital that we appreciate and understand what's going on, because, um, I mean, I, I hadn't shared this with you before, but my father was a marine biologist, so he he was obviously focused on water based <laughs> creatures but i grew up in a home where biology and you know animals and it was all really big part of what we were doing and and i think hearing what you're doing today advocating and even looking at legislation and what could change like that's really important work so What we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to anything that you'd like so that people can find out more. And I hope that this interview will be a tool that you can use to tell new people about the work that's going on. And hopefully you can continue to garner support for it and continue to grow. Um, So the, the thing I loved as well was just hearing your childhood. I know we'd spent a lot of time talking about that. And we ended up on philosophical discussions about humans and animals and nature. But to me, that's really important because it sets the scene as to why this is something that you're spending time on and why you're passionate about it. So thank you for um, sharing with us and, and telling us about your history. And uh, it just leads me to say, um, yeah, I really appreciate your time today as well, because I know you're busy and um, want to say thank you for coming on the show and sharing some of your story.
1: Thank you. It's been really interesting and you're quite fun to talk to. I like talking about that philosophical stuff. It sort of helps me to understand the, the context of my work and, Mm. um be open to other perspectives it's that's my goal this year is to be more curious
0: oh good well you should check out seeds podcast this will be about episode 340 so <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of conversations <laughs> that are very similar to this but obviously every person has a different story so yeah just Thank you for your time. Um, look forward to staying connected. Thanks, David. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jennifer. There were a bunch of highlights for me, and I enjoyed hearing her perspective on what motivates her, and in particular, that discussion about animals and how we relate to them. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, then why not leave a rating and review, tell one other person, and why not paste the link to the conversation in social media somewhere? That way, other people can find out about the resource that is Seeds Podcast. Until next time.